Man, that's one of my favorite songs. Thank you, worship team, for doing it so well. I really appreciate that. It was amazing. Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to see you this morning on this fine Lord's Day. It's a little overcast, and that is all right, because we are here worshiping our Lord and Savior, and every, every time we do that, every time we gather together, it is a wonderful and great day, and the light shines upon us. So, we have been in a sermon series for this fall entitled, Who is Jesus?, and in this sermon series, we're exploring that question, looking at who our Savior is. Who does he tell us he is? How does he act? And what's important to him? Last week, we heard from Pastor Wilson, and he went over that iconic verse in uh, Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And he explored that concept, that Jesus is our rest. This week, we're actually fast-forwarding just a little bit to Matthew 13, and we're going over the parable of the sower. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we do thank you for this day of worship. We thank you that uh, you saw fit, Lord to call each and every single one of us here, that for whatever reason we find ourselves here, whatever our reason is, the true reason, Lord, is that you have called us and that we are responding to that call. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for gracing us with the privilege of worshiping you. Jesus, we heard from Eddie today that you are indeed the word become flesh, the word incarnate. That is such a great joy that you became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, we, we ask that you would ignite um, that hope in our hearts afresh this morning. Holy Spirit, we do praise you for your work in this worship service. And uh, we ask, Lord, that you guide my thoughts as I preach and illumine our hearts as we dive into your word. It is in Jesus' sweet name that we pray. Amen. All right. So, like I said, we're going to go over the, the parable of the sower today. And there are a couple of questions that we're going to ask of this parable. Um, so, kind of illustrating that, early on in my ministry, you know, while I was still in seminary, actually, a young man started attending our church. And uh, he was... He attended our church, and he attended the men's Bible study, and we'll call him Jack. That's not his name, but it's a, it's a nice generic name. Um, not that I think you'll know him, but who knows? You might. Um, so Jack, he was young, and he was young in the faith, and I started meeting with him. I started trying to disciple him as I'm going through seminary, and so I would have lunch with him probably every two or three weeks, and... Um, when we first started meeting, he had kind of the same question again and again. You know, he was really struggling with his assurance because he was, he was new in the faith. And his question was always centered around that. How, how is it that I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I actually have faith? You know, how do I know that I'm not fooling myself? And as I was working with him, and preaching the gospel to him in all of those lunches and in the Bible studies, 
uh, I saw his faith grow. And I saw this growth happen in him. And starting to bear, it started to bear fruit. And as, as he started to bear fruit, his question changed. And he confided in me. He said that, you know, I, I'm trying to follow Jesus. And the Great Commission is a real thing. And I'm trying to minister to the people at the bank that I work at. And so I preach the gospel to them. I take them out to lunch. I try to disciple them. And many of them just won't even talk to me anymore. Many of them don't want to hear it. Just right out the gate, they shut me down. They don't want to talk about Jesus. And then others, you know, they might tolerate me talking about Jesus for a little bit. But eventually, you know, after one or two meetings, they don't want to talk about Jesus anymore. And then, you know, I actually got one of my coworkers to come to church. And he came to my small group. And he came to church twice, and he came to small group once, and then now he doesn't even want to talk to me. He seems embarrassed. And I don't really know what to do. Why is it that my coworkers don't believe? How is it, how is it that I believe, but they don't? How is it that something that seems so obvious and life-giving to me doesn't give that same life to them? And those are the questions that we come to the text today with. Those are the questions that kind of Jesus answers in this text. So let's, uh, let's read the text. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. Please stand for the reading of God's word. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the, then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what is sown along the path. And, and for, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Thus far the reading of God's word, all men are like grass. All their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But God's word stands forever. Let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So, we're going to be looking at three things from this text. Three things that are going to kind of guide us toward the answers to those two questions that, that I posed. Two questions that I got from Jack. And the first is what is the purpose of the parables just in general? And the second is the explanation of this parable. And the third is what is Jesus' purpose for telling this parable? What's his goal? So let's look at the purpose of the parables first. This skips ahead just a little bit to the middle section here. Starting in verse 10, we read, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? So the disciples asked this question, and, you know, it's a fair question, you know, because up to this point, he had taught mainly, uh, very plainly. He had spoken plainly to all the crowds. He had gone through the Sermon on the Mount. He had uh, preached to the people. He had healed them. He preached in chapters 11 and 12. Even confronting the Pharisees, he spoke plainly. But here now he switches and he, he turns to parables. And parables, you know, they were kind of this mysterious form of teaching. It's, it really didn't become a thing to teach by parables until Jesus came. There were some parables out there, but they weren't the standard teaching. And yet Jesus made them a part of his teaching. And in fact, this is his primary way of teaching the crowds from here on out. And it's plain that he wants to teach them something, but the disciples just don't know what. You know, why, Jesus, are you teaching these parables? You know, it's not just a pedagogical question about his teaching methods either. You know, we might just think, you know, well, maybe, he maybe they're just critiquing his method. But no, there's something deeper behind this question. And to understand this, let's, let's go back just a little bit in the text to see where we've been, what's been happening in the gospel so far. So Jesus comes on the scene and he's baptized and then he goes into the desert and he's tempted. And then after that, he starts teaching very plainly. He goes through the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of his greatest sermons, one of the greatest sermons ever preached. He heals people. He casts out demons. He even... He even charges the crowds 
of Capernaum and Bethsaida. He charges them with ignoring his mighty works. He says that the mighty works that had been done in you, if they had been done in the reprobate cities of the Old Testament, they would have repented long ago. Woe to you. It's very plain. And then he moves into, we move into chapter 12, and we see that his conflict with the Pharisees intensify. It intensifies quite a bit. He's leading, his, he's leading his disciples through a grain of field, and they start picking grains to eat, and the Pharisees accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. He heals a man's hand on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees accuse him again of breaking the Sabbath because healing on the Sabbath wasn't allowed as far as they were concerned. And then he casts out demons, and their accusation against him is, well, you're only casting out demons because you're in league with the devil. That's the only way you could have the power to do it. And so, the crowds are still thronging around him. They're still coming. But he's already addressed the fact that they're not actually responding the way they should. They should be responding with repentance, and yet they don't. They're coming for the spectacle. And they're thronging around him. And so he gets into a boat. And he gives them a parable, which is just weird. And his disciples say, Jesus, we don't even understand this. We don't understand this parable. How in the world, if we don't understand it, can you expect the crowds and the Pharisees to understand it? You can't, you can't expect that. If you would just speak plainly to them. If you would just keep doing what you've been doing, calling them to repentance, then maybe they would understand. Maybe they would turn. If you would just speak plainly, Jesus, why don't you do that? And so Jesus responds. We see his response in verse 11. And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of heaven. Secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus is responding, and he's saying to their question, to that unspoken question, why is it that you're speaking in this confusing way? Why don't you speak plainly? He's responding, and he said, I've spoken plainly. I have spoken very plainly, and they haven't heard me. I have performed miracle after miracle in their midst, and they haven't really seen it. All they've seen is the spectacle. All they've seen is the healing. All they've seen is the sideshow. And that's what they think of me. They don't see this as indicative of the kingdom breaking in and their call to repentance. They don't understand. And so that's why he responds with a parable. Which is odd, you know, because, you know, whenever we think about parables, usually we think, well, parables are supposed to be these nice parochial stories that, you know, they, they drive at some deeper spiritual truth 
And so by going to a parable, we can actually understand something about the kingdom of God that we wouldn't be able to understand otherwise, that he's teaching for that method, for that way, using it as an illustration. And there is an aspect to parables like that, but that's not what he says here. We think when we hear parables that this is to help people understand and to clarify things. But Jesus says that he speaks in parables so that people will not understand. They haven't understand so far. They haven't heard. They haven't actually used their eyes and seen. They haven't repented. And so he speaks in parables not to reveal the kingdom to the crowds, but to reveal the kingdom to the disciples and to hide it from the crowds. Why? I mean, it's, it's strange that he doesn't want people to understand, isn't it? Why confuse them? He continues, he says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So what is he saying? He's saying that people have closed their eyes, they've closed their hearts, they've hardened their hearts. He's saying that they don't want to believe. Their hearts are set against the Lord, and they want nothing to do with him. And that's why they're not responding to his teaching. That's, not, that's why that they're not responding to his plain speech. And this becomes clear when we look again at verse 12, which says, you know, for to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, this, this is the first parable in the Gospel of Matthew. And this kind of sets the stage for all of the parables in the rest of the Gospel. And right here, before the explanation of the parable, we have this statement, this weird, odd statement where Jesus says, to the one who has, more will be given, and to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The thing is, that's not the only time in the Gospel of Matthew that that's said. It's not the only time that he says it. Jesus actually says it one other time in the Gospel of Matthew. He says it in his last parable, at the very end of his last parable. And this is the parable of the talents. And if you remember the parable of the talents, a king, he's going away to claim his kingdom. And as he's going away, he gives his servants money, a lot of money. He gives one ten uh, talents, he gives one five talents, and he gives one one talent. And the guy with ten talents says, okay, great. I have this money, I'm going to make my master more. And so he goes out and he does business and he doubles his money. And the second servant does the same thing. But the third servant, the third one, he doesn't. He hides his money away. And then when his master comes back, he gives it back to him and says to him, well, you know, I really didn't want to risk it because I knew you were a harsh taskmaster. I knew that you reaped where you didn't sow. I knew that any money that I earned should be properly mine, not yours, and that you were just after stealing my labor. 
That's how he responds. And the guy is stripped of his money, and it's given to the one who has ten talents. And then we hear this statement again from the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And that gives us kind of a little bit of an insight as to the heart that Jesus is talking about here. It's not just that someone doesn't understand. It's that their heart is hardened. It's hardened to the point where when they look at God and they see him, they see him as an evil person. This is what the Pharisees were doing back in chapter 12 when they accused Jesus of casting out demons with the power of demons. They looked at this good thing and said, no, it has evil motives and an evil power. That's how hard their heart was. And that, that is why he is speaking in parables. To take away any knowledge that they might have. It's an act of judgment against, against the unbelievers. He ends his, he ends his uh, explanation of why he's turned to preaching in parables uh, with this, verse 16. He says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. What's he telling the disciples? He's saying, I'm speaking in parables. It is a judgment against the unbelievers. And it is a blessing for you. Because God is at work in your heart. It's a blessing for you because you can understand it. Now, so that's why he's speaking in parables in general. So what about his explanation for the parable of the sower? You know, how does Jesus explain this particular parable? So he starts out by talking about a sower. The sower is going along, and he's in his field, and he's scattering seed. This is how, this is how farmers back in Rome would actually plant their fields. They would till them up. There were a couple of different methods, but one method is that they would till them up, and then they would walk, walk along the path between their crops the rows that they had, and they would scatter seed, scatter seed. And so that's what the sower is doing. The sower is scattering seed. And what is the seed that the sower is scattering? It's the word of God. It's the word of the kingdom of heaven. It's the gospel. That's what the sower is scattering. And some of it lands on the path. And as it lands on the path, you know, these hardened paths developed in the farmer's field. And it... <clears throat> They were used primarily for like harvesting grain and stuff. So they would have their row of crops and then they would have a path so they wouldn't have to damage the crops as they went by and harvested things. Also, travelers would use these hard paths. And over time, they would actually become rock hard. You know, they, they stayed there year in, year out. And so when the seed went out on the path, the birds come in, swoop in, and take the seed away. Kind of get the image as soon as it strikes the path. And Jesus says that this path, this, this path actually represents someone who has that hard heart, that super hard heart. 
Whenever they hear the gospel, it just bounces off. And anything that might take root, Satan comes in and snatches it away from them so that they don't believe. It never impacts them. And then he gets to the rocky soil. Now, so back in my early 20s, I actually I worked for a little bit of time on this uh, very large garden, or you might call it a very small farm. It was about two acres. And one of the things that we had to do to get ready uh, for the, the growing season is that we had to sift the soil for rocks. And we actually had a nickname for it. It was called the rock garden. And this, uh, this rock garden, it was always growing rocks. You know, year after year, we would have to sift this thing for rocks. And it, it strange because we'd go out there for eight hours a day for two weeks. And we'd sift out all the rocks and get the soil ready. And then the next year, all the rocks would be back. <laughs> it was weird that the garden was actually growing rocks. And there's, there's actually a good geological process dealing with rain and snow and freezing and stuff that explains that. But that's neither here nor there. But rocks grow up in gardens. They grow up on farmland. And so the image here is that there, there is soil that has been growing up rocks, and the sum of the seed goes out and hits the soil that's on <clears throat> amidst those rocks, and it sprouts up, and it sprouts up very, very quickly, almost immediately. And as it sprouts up, it grows up nice and big, but it doesn't ever put down roots because it can't, because the rocks are there. And so what happens? The sun comes in and bakes it, and it withers away. And Jesus says that that rocky soil, that's just like the believer who believes and receives their word with joy, but it never actually takes root in their heart. And therefore, when persecution comes, when the sun comes, the same thing that would actually give life and build faith in a believer, that same thing, actually just scorches them, and they leave the faith. They wither and die. And then we see the next soil. The next soil is the thorny soil. And if you've ever tried to clear out thorns or brambles or um, hopefully not, but, you know, the goat's head burrs that are just so persistent and painful and will, like, pop tires if you've ever tried to clear those out of any plot of land, you'll know that you'll be doing it every year, probably until the end of time, until Jesus comes back. Because if you miss one, one thorn, one goat's head burr, they come back. And so the picture here is that there's a, a spot of the soil that's been growing thorns, and the farmer's come in, and he's cleared the soil, and yet... Some of the thorns and thistles, some of the seeds for that are still there. And so when he scatters his grain, it starts to grow. But the thorns and thistles grow up faster and choke it out. And that, that soil, that's representative of the believer who's drawn away by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Cares of the world and deceitfulness of wealth grow up around the believer as their faith starts 
to blossom, but before it's really fruited and taken root and proven itself to be true, it grows up and strangles it out, saps out all of the, all of the nutrients from the soil, blocks it from the sun so that it can't grow. And you see this today. You see all of these today, too. You know, you see this in believers or people who have the, the word preached to them. You see people who have just such a hard heart, like the people at Jack's work, who won't even listen to the word. The gospel is preached to them, and it just bounces off. Satan steals it. And then you see the people who receive the word with joy, but as soon as the trials of life come, they fall. And of course, there are many, many people that the cares of the world lead away from the church, and they they stop praying first, and then they stop reading their Bible regularly, and then eventually they stop going to any of the the church activities or fellowships, and the end result is that they'll even stop going to church. That's very sad. The last soil, though, the last soil, that is the good soil. The seed falls on the good soil, and the grain sprouts up, and it grows slowly, and it grows its root system down, and it's strong and vibrant, and it starts to bear fruit. In fact, in Roman times, you know, the acceptable trade-off is that if you had like a bushel of grain that you were sowing into your field, um, a sufficient harvest, something that they would consider decent, would be if you got 10 bushels of grain back for every bushel you sowed. But what Jesus is picturing here is way more than that. You know, if, if you doubled that and got 20 back, they'd consider that an excellent harvest. This... 100 times, 60 times, 30 times. It's a super abundant harvest. The believers will bear fruit in this super abundant way. So that's the explanation of the parable that Jesus gives. He, he gives that explanation, but what, what's his purpose? Why did Jesus tell this parable right now? What was his point in teaching it? Because it seems to come a little bit out of left field. Well, there are a few reasons that we can choose from, probably many more than I can come up with. But he tells this parable right now because he sees, first off, he sees the disciples' hearts. He knows what's going on in their hearts. They've they've witnessed his ministry so far. And so how has that ministry gone? He's preached to crowds upon crowds upon crowds. He's healed many, many people. He's cast out demons. And yet, the Pharisees are now accusing him of being in league with Satan. They're accusing him of breaking the law of God, even though he's not. And the people are not actually responding how they should. They're not responding to his call of repentance. They're responding to the spectacle of his teaching and his healing. And he sees that. He sees that question start to form in their hearts. Why are people not responding? Why is it that I believe 
but they don't. What's wrong? When he sees that question develop and he graciously moves to answer it, Jesus, why are people rejecting you? And his answer is because of the parable. It's playing out right now. This parable that I just told you, this is what's going on. As I preach, as I spread the gospel, as I spread the word of God, some people are having it stolen away by Satan. That's perfectly descriptive of the Pharisees, whose hearts are, many, most of them probably, so hard that all they see in Jesus is a false prophet. All they see in Jesus is Satan in their own words. Ultimately, people reject him for all three of these reasons. And that's why the people aren't responding to him. That's why he's getting these accusations from the Pharisees. They're rejecting him because they don't actually love God. And referring to the Isaiah passage like he does, he's kind of saying in a sideways way, this shouldn't really surprise you. Like, I see the question, I see your heart, I see why, why you would be troubled by this, but it really shouldn't surprise you. Because this, this was actually a prophecy back in Isaiah, and it was fulfilled in Isaiah's time too. In fact, it was fulfilled in many other times. Many times that the prophet of God would go to God's people, people's hearts would be hardened, and they wouldn't respond. They wouldn't listen to the prophet. They wouldn't listen to God. It shouldn't surprise you. This has always been this way, ever since the fall. Second, he's preparing them for what's coming, because, you know, people not responding to his teaching, that's, that's kind of small potatoes right now. You know, considering what's coming, because what's coming is intense persecution, arrest, being beaten, mocked, and then crucified and put to death. It shouldn't, <clears throat> it shouldn't, shouldn't worry them that this is what's happening because it's always what's been happening and it's going to get more intense. And the third reason that I, I see is to bless believers. And we see that right there in verse 16. Blessed are you, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. We get this also in verse 9. You know, verse 9, he, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now it's the disciples who have, who have gone to him and they've asked this question, you know, why is it that you're teaching in parables? And he gives that answer, but... Before that, after he teaches the parable the first time, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. That, that's an invitation to everybody who's in the crowd. If you have ears, if God has given you ears, hear what I'm saying. The blessing of believers also goes out just because he is casting, casting seeds of the gospel out onto every person in that crowd. And even though they may be disbelieving now, even though they may not respond properly now, those seeds are there. And if those seeds fall on good soil, they will sprout up 
They will. And they'll end up bearing fruit, even if you don't see it now. Growth is slow. Lastly, it's to build up believers in general, all of us in faith. So how does it build up our faith? How does, how does this parable build up our faith? And answer those two questions back in the beginning. How is it that we know that we're saved? How is it that we know that our faith is real and that we actually believe? And why is it that other people don't seem to believe? Well, a cursory look at the parable, you know, whenever we're trying to just analyze our faith, how do we know our faith is real? A cursory look would say, hey, you know your faith is real by the fruit that you bear. If you look at your fruit, if you're bearing fruit, then you're a believer. And so we ask ourselves, are we actually bearing fruit? And that's fine, I guess. But the problem is, um, there are actually a few problems with that. The first is that growth in general is long-term. And so looking at your Christian walk now, you may not actually see very much fruit because growth doesn't happen all at once. And so when you look at your, at your position with Christ and your relationship, you may not be bearing very much fruit now. And so you may not see it. You know, growth itself is really kind of impossible to measure as it's seen here, until the harvest, until the end of your life where all of your fruit that you're going to bear has been born. That's, that's the only way to properly measure how fruitful you are. But there's also just the fact that we have a tendency to be very easily deceived. We are deceived by Satan. We deceive ourselves. We look at our own fruitfulness and we misjudge it. Sometimes we misjudge it and say that we're not bearing any fruit at all. When other people would look at us and say, he has grown a lot in the past year. And that's how I looked at Zach. And he couldn't see his fruit. He never had that vibrant assurance while I was ministering to him. But he was growing and I could see the fruit even if he couldn't. No, and we also deceive ourselves. I bet you, if you would ask any of the Pharisees at this point in time, which soil that they're a part of, what would they say? What would they say? Almost to a man, they would say the good soil. And how do they know that? Because they're keeping the law. Because they're tithing even the dill and the cumin. They would peg themselves as the good soil. Whereas Jesus would actually peg them as that path that isn't actually responding to the gospel. We deceive ourselves. Satan deceives us. We're not a good judge of our own fruit. So perhaps a better way to assess, assess your Christian walk is to look at the dangers around you. You know, does Satan come in and seal your joy in the gospel? Does that happen frequently? Circumstances happen and it, you just, you have no hope, you have no joy, you have no faith. Is that what's happening? Well, you need to be aware of the birds. 
because that's a danger, because Satan is coming in and stealing the joy of the gospel from you. You're in danger of being the path. And does your faith wither a little bit, melt when the sun of the trials of this life shine on it? You're in danger from the rocky soil. You're in danger from shallow roots and a shallow faith that cannot withstand, cannot withstand persecution, cannot withstand the methods that God uses typically to grow people's faith. Are the cares of this life, the allure of wealth, is that drawing you away from the gospel? Have you noticed that you don't attend church as much as you did? That you don't pray as much as you used to? Have you noticed that you don't read the Bible? You don't connect with God? Skip church. Thorns are growing up around you. That is a good way to assess where you are. It's a good way because those things should be obvious to you if you actually look out over your lives, if you ask those questions. Am I taking joy? Do trials actually wither my faith or do they grow it? Are the cares of the world taking me away from Jesus? But what do we do about those dangers? You know, there's this really interesting thing about the parable that maybe you've noticed it, maybe you haven't, but it's in the description of all of the people that are being discussed, okay? So there's the sower, okay? And he's active, and he's scattering seed. And then there's the seed itself, and it's active, and it's growing. And then there's the birds and the sun. There's the thorns, all of which are very active. The birds are taking away the seed, and the sun is shining down on the plants, and the thorns, well, they're growing up and choking everything out. But what about the soil? The soil isn't active at all. No, the soil is passive here. The soil can't do anything. The soil can't till up the hard-packed ground. He can't, the soil can't till up the path. The soil can't root out the rocks. The soil can't root out the thorns. The soil can't do anything about that. No. So who does that work? The sower does that work. The sower is the one who tends to the field. He doesn't just scatter the seed. He also tills up the path when he needs to. He also gets rid of the rocks, gets rid of the thorns. The sower is the one that does that. And only he can do that work. And just like in that parable, where only the sower can do that work, only Jesus, who is the sower, can do that work in you. If you notice your heart growing hard, what do you do? You can't do anything except cry out to the sower and ask, beg, Lord, tell up my heart. Soften this ground. He's responsible for that work. And if he began a good work in you, he will complete it. He has promised that. If you notice, if you notice that 
your roots are shallow and you have this shallow faith, then you, you ask, you ask the Lord, I'm noticing that I don't have a depth of faith that I want and I need you to deepen my roots. I need you to deepen my faith because I don't want to wither and die. And I know that apart from you, I will. Please, till up the earth. Root out everything that might get in the way between me and you. And it's interesting, this whole metaphor of the sower scattering the seed that Jesus is using. Because who is Jesus said to be? The sower is said to be scattering the seed, and the seed is the word of the kingdom of heaven. Who is Jesus said to be? He's said to be the word of God. And then all the way back in Genesis, he's said to be the seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham. And of course, we know that means offspring, but the word is the same. It's the seed. He is both the seed and the word. He is the one that is sown, and he is the one who sows. He's the one that plants the gospel in you, and he is the one that is actually the gospel itself. How is that? How is that? It's because he is the one that actually emptied himself of everything, didn't claim to be God, claimed to be God, sorry, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. And became faithful in obedience, even with obedience to the point of death on a cross. How do you know that Jesus will actually respond to you? How do you know that Jesus is actually going to work in you? How do you know that he's going to root out all of these things and claim you fully and completely as your own and give you the growth that you need? It's because of the gospel, because he has already done the work. And if you have cried out to him, if you are his, he will complete the work, and you have nothing to fear, nothing to fear. He is the true word sown in the soil, in your soil. And that is amazing. And don't lose heart, that second question. Whenever you, whenever you look at your ministry to people and you say, well, it's not very fruitful, people aren't responding to me, don't lose heart. You know, I didn't come to faith until I was 27 years old. I was an atheist for the vast majority of my life. People started to minister to me when I was 10 years old. They were sowing seeds. Sowing seeds for 17 years. And it didn't sprout until I was 27. And Jesus is actually working in you through you bringing his dominion upon the earth. He is working in you and through you to sow more seeds. And as you minister to people, they may not respond. They may not respond right away. And you may never see them respond. Most of the people who minister to me have no idea that I'm a Christian. And yet, and yet, those seeds were sown. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope for anybody. Pray that the sower would be at work. Amen. Let us pray. Jesus, we praise you that you are the sower, that you 
that you come and that you sprinkle the blessing of the gospel all through the world, that your mercy has gone out. Lord, it is, it is amazing to think that the seeds sown in us are bearing fruit and will continue to bear fruit and that the, because of that seed, we will actually be able to sow, sow your word or you will be able to sow your word through us into other people until more and more of the world becomes yours. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for not counting us as too small to save, for not counting our sin against us, but instead taking compassion on on us so that you might claim us as your own. Thank you for making us fruitful. Give us the growth and till up the soil of our souls. Make us more and more receptive to you every day. It is in your name.